you know what? Screw the pre-show. It's not the boss of us. Yeah. Or you could make the pre-show just you saying, I think we're going to skip the pre-show. Yeah, but that's so cliche. We shouldn't do that. We got to stop doing that. Just admit, admit you're failing, Chris. No, I could. I could. I could come up with a pre-show if I wanted to. If I wanted to. I'm sure I could, you know, but I figure, why bother? You know what? Who needs a pre-show? Nobody needs a pre-show. You know, pre-show is not even the actual show. So if it was, we'd put it in the show. So we might as well just get rid of it. These folks just want extra free show. That's not fair. I know. Hello, friends, and welcome back to your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. Guess what? What? Big news. This episode's brought to you by the all-new Cloud Guru, the leader in learning for cloud Linux and other modern tech skills. Hundreds of courses, thousands of hands-on labs. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. Coming up on today's episode, this is one of those episodes. This is one of those. It's a it's one of those, really. You know what? I don't even need to say more than that, but I'm gonna. It might just be one of the most exciting releases in a long time. Fedora 34 is out today as we record, and we have a comprehensive review coming up. But loads of new tech are packed into this Fedora release beyond just GNOME 40, which is big on its own. And basically all of it that we're going to talk about today will be coming to a distribution near you very soon. Plus, as always, we've got some community news, some picks, and more. So before I get into any of that, I got to holla at that virtual lug. Time-appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. Hello. How's it going? We've got a strong group today. Yeah. Look at that. Jeez, how'd you all fit in here? Wow. You know, this is why we had to get the Mega Studio. Because, you know, all the social distancing and whatnot, we needed the uh, 40,000 square feet. And the room for the grills. Right, of course. Let's get into uh, some community news. Um, And this week, we wanted to talk a little bit about this University of Minnesota kernel ban story. Please do check out Linux Action News 186, where we went into some details there. But if you didn't know, I want to make sure we cover some of this in, in this here episode, because... This is a very thick and complicated story with a lot of finger pointing and mail list posts to read. And if you didn't know the details, you might you might not fully understand and appreciate the scale of this problem. You might maybe, you know, just sort of brush it off as drama or or just sort of not even really pay attention, but there is a real problem here. Three hypocrite patches, as they are called by the researchers, made it into the Linux kernel around August of 2020. If you didn't know that, you should be listening to Land because I think a lot of people right now think that nothing made it, that a maintainer caught something in April and rejected it, and these patches never made it in, but that's actually not the case. In fact, there's, there's really no evidence that indicates the patch in April is linked to these hypocrite patches at all. So... It's a great example of why Wes and I go above and beyond to really try to get the facts right. I contacted Greg K.H. directly to try to get some of the details as accurate as possible for the story. And, you know, one thing that I feel like hasn't been properly talked about is a pretty valid concern that was going to be raised by the research. Super quick recap, Wes. You totally correct me if I'm wrong. Just, just jump right in. But if you're not familiar with the story, back in August of 2020, some researchers at the University of Minnesota around that time submitted a series of stealthy fixes that weren't really fixes, that when combined actually sort of created a vulnerability, but not necessarily each individually on their own. And three of those patches were accepted by the maintainer of that particular subsystem into the Linux kernel in August of 2020-ish time. 
We don't actually have all the details yet. That's one of the things the Linux Foundation is asking for. And it is a little nuanced because it sort of relied on the workflow of the maintainers. They, were, they weren't looking for the code to actually make it into a Git tree. They were just looking for the maintainer to sign off on it saying like, yeah, this looks good. Right. Didn't ever ship to like a distro or even making it a Linus's tree, right? It wasn't like it never made it that far. And I think it's also worth mentioning, just as a side note here, my understanding is, again, the university has not given us all the details yet, but my understanding is when the maintainer accepted the patches, the university actually reached out and went, oh, oh, actually, we just caught the uh, mistake. Here's the actual patch instead, and then sent them working code. That's their claim. I don't know how true that is. But um, that is important to understand. That So then we fast forward to April of 2021 when a PhD student submitted a patch and it was rejected by the maintainer for being just crap code. And not really fixing anything, right? They're like, well, you're saying you're, you're fixing this uh, use after free thing, but we, we've already taken care of that elsewhere. This doesn't do anything. Right. And so there was a little bit of, you know, suspicion about like, why did you submit this? Because your university has a history here of kind of screwing with the kernel for your own research. And now you submit me this patch that looks kind of like garbage. This is either just you not knowing what you're doing or malicious. And so that triggered a series of events that eventually led to the University of Minnesota from being banned to contributing to the kernel and the kernel team going through and reviewing any patch they've ever made. And the Linux Foundation sending the university a letter saying, you need to tell us about every patch you've ever committed to open source projects, period, and you need to kill that paper. Essentially, you need to shut that paper down that you are about to announce in less than a month at the IEEE convention that happens virtually on like May 23rd through the 25th. You got to shut that paper down because the researchers were writing a paper essentially about doing these hypocrite patches about how they could gain the trust of open source developers and then trick them into accepting bogus code to build a vulnerability via multiple patches. And they were going to write a paper and they did and they were going to publish it. It's all done. It's written. That's not what the recent news is about. The recent news is just sort of perfectly timed so that when that paper does announce or, or they're going to have to kill it, like that paper's dead, basically. The news is perfectly timed to kill the news story that was about to be landing as a bit of a bombshell, potentially, around the end of May. And the question that I think the researchers were trying to raise is, is one in one part, no duh. If you trick somebody for a while and then you stealthily slip in bogus code that builds to a vulnerability, I think even without doing any studies pretty good guess you could probably get that past a maintainer. But what about that problem? It's truly possible it could happen at Microsoft or Apple or Oracle or some other proprietary organization. Absolutely. But it's not as easy. Because there's going to be, like in the case of the macOS kernel, about four people at Apple that are allowed to actually commit that code. And so you'd have to compromise one of those four people, at least at least their GPG key. And on top of that, there is a clear repercussion system in place if somebody were to make a compromise like that. It's not impossible, but it's much harder to happen with a Windows kernel or the Mac OS kernel. And then imagine for a moment if this was something higher up in the stack. If this wasn't a kernel, if this was maybe Nginx or something even higher up in the stack in the user land, that really doesn't have as many eyes. Could be in a, you know, just a common library that you have, right? Uh, who, who really cares what gets merged into LeftPad? And so what do we do about this problem, Wes? Because it's there. It's probably not super critical because in reality it would eventually be caught. It would be worked out. The way the systems and tools work, we'd know when it was committed and who committed it and every commit they'd ever made. So there are tools in place in that regard. But doesn't it seem like there should be something in place 
screening or doing some kind of automated checking at best we can to see if what they claim it does, it even does? Well, I, you know, to some degree, there are some automated tooling. There's, I think, the question of can we have more things that help? That's always true. We have to think about it. There's just bugs that get merged, both malicious and accidental. That's just a, that's a problem that happens in all software and, and in the kernel as well. I think we need some more research to help understand, like, what's the scope of this problem? And how does the maintainership process really work? I think scholarship around that and what's happening there is worthwhile, just clearly not in the way these researchers did it. No kidding. Talk about messing around with a development team that has very limited time and resources and messing around with software that literally ships in mission-critical, life-critical applications. There is satisfying a intellectual curiosity, and then there is crossing the line. And I agree with the kernel team that from the evidence that's available to us at this time, in my opinion, they definitely crossed the line. And they are right to ban future development until they sort this whole thing out. They've been sent a letter. They've been they've, The Linux Foundation has made reasonable requests, in my opinion. And um, now it's really kind of the balls in the university's court. They've, they've, uh, they released on the 24th of April an apology. But the apology sort of just says, well, if I'd asked you for the cookie, you would have said no, so I just took the cookie. And so I know I shouldn't have taken the cookie, but I really wanted the cookie, is essentially what their apology says. Not good enough. No, and a lot of folks pointed out that, well, you could you could have tried to come up with other methodologies. And then there's just sort of the arrogance or isolation of, you know, researchers in academia who need to publish. They have an idea. They think they just want to go about it. Clearly, they didn't give that much thought to, you know, in how to get the institutional review or what level or really what the potential consequences of that work might be. And I think there's also sort of a trust between academia and open source, you know, because there's a lot of there's a lot of principles shared there and a lot of shared history. So it's sort of that's just even more rude. Yeah. And I mean, not to like, you know, bang this drum too much, but the details are in Linux Action News 186. And the reason why I'm hitting that drum so hard is Wes and I spent our entire Sunday getting the details of that story as accurate as we could. Listening back, I'm pretty happy with it. I think, you know, I would have liked maybe one more crack at the uh, at covering it, but you know, <laughs> we did we worked, you know, we, we spent all day on it on on a Sunday to get that story right. And so the details I think matter in this one because it, there's multiple timelines, there's multiple he said she said uh, and so uh it is a fascinating topic and the bigger question it raises I think is worth considering. And we should say I think that question is being considered, maybe not as much as it should or not as publicly, but right, uh, right. you did see in the mailing list, like, there were even conversations around people asking, you know, how much review do you give to these folks? Some maintainers saying, like, oh, I, you know, I, someone like that, I'd be very skeptical. And others saying, well, you know, we have to admit we're, you know, many of us are very busy maintainers, and if the code looks good, we might just merge it. So I think there's also a, a cultural thing at play beyond tooling. And that conversation should happen, too. And while all of this is going on, of course, business still is normal, usual. Development continues for the Linux kernel. And version 5.12 was released this weekend. And Linux can now run as a root partition on Hyper-V. There's also more support for that lightweight hypervisor Acorn, as well as some RISC-V support landing. Broadcom's VK video accelerators, instead of CPU load, can now be chip-based. Support for the PlayStation controller for PS5. Nice. Nintendo 64 and more all land. Nintendo 64 consoles in there too, which we noted on LAN as well, but just hilarious. That thing runs at like 94 megahertz. You can just swap it (laughs) in for a couple of your pies, right? (laughs) You you don't need more than 8 megs of RAM. You know what I found fascinating though around 512, Wes, was actually just some of the details of what make up a kernel. So if you look at it, 
in in some senses, Linux 5.12 was one of the slowest development cycles we have seen in the kernel since version 5.6, which was not released that long ago, about a year ago. But there's still plenty of things that landed, like we mentioned, and you still have some serious numbers here. Uh, 1,873 developers contributed to Linux 5.12. 262 of those were first-time contributors. That's about an average number, but it's pretty neat to see that. Oh, yeah. No, that is nice to see. Of course, there's on the other side, there's some heavy hitters, folks like Lee Jones, who was the most active change set contributor this time around, working on compiler stuff, docs, and warnings throughout the tree. Chris Wilson doing a lot of work on the Intel i915 graphics driver, which, hey, uh, as an Intel user, I appreciate that. And uh, Christopher Helwig continues to clean up the code in the block layer and file systems. Also important work. Yeah, that looks really good, and it's nice to see the IOU ring subsystem get some improvements. The network subsystem is in there as well, some cleanup code in the block layer and file systems. So it's a good, solid kernel in there. It's a handsome kernel, you might say, and it was supported by 211 different employers that LWN was was able to identify. So LWN went in and looked at this stat. They say it's a small decrease, but the top contributor by change sets in 5.12 is Intel at 10.9% of the changes. Interestingly, though, by lines changed, Lenaro is at the top with 17.4%. Right, when you go by the by the pure number of lines of code changed, Lenaro was really crushing it this time. I guess just due to a flurry of code removal patches that they sent out this time. All right, cleaning, keeping things clean, I like that. That counts, man, that counts. Unknown represents 7.7% of changes by uh, just looking at change sets. And then at, in the number three slot, is Red Hat uh, with uh, 872 change sets. Red Hat's also in the number three slot when you look at just lines changed with 38,000 lines of code changed just in this kernel. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> wow, that's just those sca- the scale, Wes. The scale of this project and the fact that they managed to ship and ship reliably and produce something usable is... It, well, it needs to be, it's going to have to be studied by historians at some point. Well, yeah, right? That's kind of why some of the, some scholarship is is warranted here, because they incorporate a huge number of changes in a reliable way, in a predictable way. I mean, you know, we're going to be running a pretty new kernel with 5.11 here on Fedora, and I'm, I'm not worried about that at all, and I wouldn't really be worried about switching to 5.12 today either. Yeah, in fact, 5.13 is shaping up to be a big boy. Uh, Torvalds wrapped up the announcement of 5.12 by kind of prepping people. For the, se- the for the size and scale of 5.13, he says, quote, please spend a bit of time running and checking out 5.12 before we start sending a merge request for 5.13 because despite the extra week, this 5.12 was actually a fairly small release overall. And judging by Linux-Nextree, 5.13 is going to be making up for it. And in 5.13, is just a reminder, we're going to get initial support for Apple's M1 chips, uh-huh. the addition of a new wireless WAN subsystem, more RISC-V support, and Intel's standalone GPUs, if they ever ship, <laughs> well, 5.13 We'll have support for them. <laughs> just can't wait. Yeah. You know what, Wes? You look at this and you go, uh, there is so much happening in kernel land that by the time by the time you could actually get caught up, like by the time you get to a distro, it's like a whole other generation of hardware is out. The kernel team, though, just continues to just crush it. And to get, like, again, some of this RISC-V stuff and Intel stuff in and the M1 stuff in before... years maybe in some cases before anybody needs it, is going to lay some groundwork for the future. Can't stop, won't stop. 
linode.com slash unplugged. Head over there and check out Linode. They're our hosting provider, and everything we've built in the last couple of years is on Linode. So you go to linode.com slash unplugged to get a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. And of course, you support the show at linode.com slash unplugged. Unlike entry-level hosting providers or the big clouds like AWS that try to tie your hands and lock you down, Linode gives you the tools to get the most out of their crazy fast systems. You get 11 data centers to choose from, and every service level is backed by the best customer support in the business. And that really matters. I mean, that really matters. It makes all of the difference when you're in a tight spot. And it's not just like one great thing like the support that makes Linode fantastic and our go-to choice for anything we're building. It's all of the great things about Linode coming together that make them special. And at every step of the way since 2003, Linode has asked themselves, how can we use Linux to accomplish this next task? How can we use Linux to do what we want in a way that people are not yet using it? Their love and dedication to that is baked into the product. And as a long-timer, I can tell it. And that's something I really love about Linode. And if you're not catching Linode's new tutorials by Hackersploit, you're missing out on something great. Some chances to learn. I'll put a link in the show notes to a video on learning the various tools and commands for logging and monitoring. These are some great basics. And if you can learn that from a YouTube video in like 15 minutes, well, that's going to change your server game. So get started by going over to linode.com slash unplugged. Get that $100 for your new account. And try this stuff out. Try out the object storage. This could be an amazing way to get your configs, your server stuff offsite in a system that's in the cloud, that's reliable, that's fast, but doesn't require running an entire server in front of it. Go build something or maybe learn something. With that $100, there's a lot you can get access to. So go to linode.com slash unplugged. There's a lot of ways to host something. And there's a lot of various companies that will do it for you. Go see why we choose Linode every time. Linode.com slash unplugged. So Flatpak has a new version that's in the works. So you have an interim release as they develop stuff, and then we're going to have the final release that is the actual stable version for end users. And the development version is 1.11.1, and the release version that we'll actually get our hands on eventually is going to be 1.12. Now, why am I telling you about this? Because this is actually the first time we've ever covered a Flatpak interim release on the show. But this time, they're taking a few steps towards something kind of cool. Yeah, they have some notable feature changes already in just point one here. One of which that's worth mentioning is allowing sub-sandboxes to have a different slash user or slash app. Why would you want that? Well, right now, initially, it's being used by the Flatpak Steam effort to launch games within its own container runtime, showing up with a replaced slash user. That's why they need the new feature. Basically, the goal is to be able to handle the Steam Linux runtime within a Flatpak sandboxed environment and sort of merge those two systems together. Whoa, my mind is blown by this. And it's not just that, too. Like, Flatpak's also working on support for better command line text user interface type programs, like the nano text editor was specifically mentioned. So that's, that's pretty great. To make it clear here, they're making it possible to support Steam's pressure vessel, right? They're not they're not using Pressure Vessel. They're making it possible. And that's that's Valve's project to put Linux runtimes in containers to make old libraries and whatnot available to games, even on newer OS releases. And unlike certain other use cases for containers, that one 
the the pressure vessel. That one, the pressure vessel stuff is just for compatibility with old games. They're not really trying to get security right. They're not really bothering about sandboxing. <laughs> I mean, the idea is that you could ship this stuff inside like a Steam flat pack and have support for these containers and um, do all of it with bubble wrap and and right uh, and, a, and a universal package i suppose the idea is pretty neat it's uh, it feels a bit like turtles all the way down to me but i i understand that it's necessary for compatibility really it's just exciting to see sort of these technologies both working and i mean i'm already using a lot of the flat pack stuff anyway it seems like this is a good sort of test of using it in anger making it work for more and more use cases and just ironing out the whole setup Okay, Wes, uh, this next one here, it's kind of one for the, for the virtual lug a bit. I think we've kind of got it wrong. I think we've all been worried about WSL, especially now WSLG, which supports GUI Linux applications. Right, yeah, everyone's a little worried about that. Yeah, we're all worried about it. But if you look at Linux's true successes in the market at scale, it's the server, right? Like desktop... As much as we love it, the desktop doesn't even really show up on the radar, right? It's just a it's just a teeny teeny tiny blip, but the server is like this. It's this massive worldwide phenomenon. So even if WSL were to rob all of the Linux desktop market, every single Linux desktop user, which is never gonna happen, but just for the sake of argument, if WSL with WSLG now on Windows 10 or Windows 11 or whatever, one day were to take every single Linux user and get them to convert somehow, it wouldn't actually radically change the market dynamics of where Linux is a powerhouse, really. It wouldn't really change the server dynamics. So WSL can't really harm Linux. In fact, if anything, it's probably just going to mean more Windows developers are writing server-side Linux applications. It's probably going to actually further <laughs> the Linux server dominance. Now, maybe it's not great for the desktop, but overall, it's going to be good for Linux. But AWS and companies like them, like, like uh, other companies that have these app platforms. These sneaky cloud services, huh? Right, or these serverless services that are working to essentially abstract Linux away. I think they take this argument that we used to worry about with Webmin or services like Cockpit that, oh, the GUI makes it so you don't even have to learn Linux and you don't even know how your system works. Well, that, that seems like, that seems like a quaint concern compared to how things like serverless application platforms work now, where everything is simply an implementation detail behind the scenes, and the user and the, and the developer never have to know any Linux, they never have to know a single command line, they don't have to know the name of any of the open source applications under the hood making it possible. And this continues to be what all of these platforms push. It's the primary par- marketing point of DigitalOcean, it's the primary marketing point of AWS to small to medium business segments. It really is true, that's what, I mean... At the day job, same thing. I mean, there's a lot of rigmarole I have to do to even get something close to, you know, Docker exec into the container, despite all of it being running on Linux and powered by container tech. Right. And so I think while we are kind of looking over at WSL, worried that it's going to eat our lunch, it really would only take companies like Amazon and one or two others to flip a switch and start changing the implementations behind the scenes, as long as they're still executing the code that end users are expecting, the customers are expecting, I don't think they're going to care if it's a Mac on a PowerPC chip executing the code as long as it runs fast enough and gives them the output they want at the price they want. The Fuchsia subsystem for Linux, right. So I actually think that these companies that are abstracting Linux away 
are more dangerous than WSL is. They're more of a risk to Linux's actual core strength and position in the market um, because you kind of you can kind of come in and sell on compatibility and ease, and then over time, Amazon could switch it on the back end to whatever they want, or Azure, or DigitalOcean. Like it could be any one of them. They could just flip a switch one day, and now it's running on their new platform. But all of the compatibility for the end user is still there. And so I wonder if Amazon is essentially over time in a position more and more to kill server Linux, which is actually the market of Linux that matters. And I I wonder if uh, anybody in the mumble room has thoughts. I don't think that they're going to do that. Like, if you want to talk about anyone who would have any incentive to do that sort of thing, it'd be Google. Uh, AWS, uh, you know, I know AWS is often the boogeyman here, and uh, I don't have much skin in this game at all. But AWS actually makes their own Linux distribution derived from Red Hat Enterprise Linux. They actively contribute to Fedora and the and the Fedora ecosystem and other distribution ecosystems. There's folks involved in SUSE Linux distributions, Debian, and so on. And they even work with FreeBSD people. Um, I think of the big cloud providers, AWS is actually the most open source friendly and the least likely to screw over the Linux ecosystem. Uh, I think few people remember how critical it was that Fedora supported Zen properly for them to even launch EC2. Fedora was the first Linux distribution that was available there. And there's a strong relationship between AWS and the Linux community as a whole. Uh, I don't think we have the similar strength of that relationship with the other cloud providers. And that's where I tend to be more worried. Microsoft has every incentive to do that because they build an operating systems platform that is directly competing against Linux on all fronts, and they're winning on one out of three fronts. And the stuff that they're doing with Wizzle makes it a lot easier to chip away at it. With uh, with with geez, with Google, like they're making Fuchsia. That is their project. Fuchsia has the ability to if not now, will eventually have the ability to emulate enough of the user syscall interface to be able to run Linux applications in the same way WSL1 did. But in server workloads, the scale of syscalls and stuff that's being used is considerably more limited. And with containers, you already have so much filtering going on that you kind of have a good idea of what kind of surface you need to cover to be able to make stuff work. And so if you target it that way, you can do exactly what you're talking about. So AWS isn't the one I'm worried about. I'm worried about the other two. Carpino, you think you agree because Google's Fuchsia project could be this bait-and-switch swap? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think it's not likely to happen anytime soon, but because Fuchsia is offered under a different license that is not GPL, it could provide a different kind of value for some companies. Therefore, uh, the, the idea of investing in it may sound attractive for some people. There's kind of two things going on. There are maybe some competitors to Linux, like Fuchsia, coming up. But then also, I think the abstraction layer is just continuing to raise like it does, right? Like we are programming to higher standards. And so Linux is just becoming more and more truly of infrastructure, as it always has been. It's just that the infrastructure is just getting farther away from us as we go up the stack. Yeah, and somebody has to set up those systems to host those applications serverlessly. Yeah, right. There'll still be a lot of cloud providers using them, at least for a while, until it makes make sense not to. And if Linux, they, they don't have to do that, and Linux means they don't have to reinvent the real. That seems like a good idea. Uh, hey, Wes, let's, uh, let's, let's duck over here, a little production side meeting. I think we should probably do this privately, though. The cone of silence. 
All right, this is a little awkward. Um, so before we mention this on the show, you know, in the past, I've I've promoted a lot of the Humble Bundles, and they seem like a pretty good cause. But yeah, I mean, I've definitely I've bought a few. Yeah, yeah, uh, I've bought more than a few, but I think they got like bought out, and I think they're making like weird, awkward changes, and like they don't la- allow you to contribute your uh, your payments to only devs who supported Linux anymore, and they're. They're kind of like restricting how much you can give to charity now, and oh. like no more than fifteen percent now. They got a they got a cap. I don't know. That's awkward, man. Do I say something on the show? Think you might have to. I, we should observe it at least anyway. You know, they've been pretty consistent over the years, so this is a big change. Yeah, it's awkward. It's definitely awkward. Okay, all right. The cone of silence. Ah, oh, dang it! I left my keys in the cone. Oh, Wes, dang it! Well, we'll go. We'll have to go back in later. Uh, we have because we right up first. We have a public service announcement. Uh, the humble bundle pricing situation is getting a little weird. If you know what's going on, go to linuxunplugged.com/contact to let us know. Yeah, it seems like they've forced a certain set of default splits, and you just kind of go with that. And you don't have any choices, which was all the fun before, uh, really. And so I don't know why. Maybe they just it wasn't sustainable. Maybe the new owners need some different revenue goals. I don't know what it is, but I wanted to let you guys know that they have capped the amount you can give to charities at fifteen percent, and they have changed it so that uh, you can no longer adjust your payments so that only developers who supported Linux. Uh, would get paid, which, you know, I understand that everybody should get some value for their product, but I I really liked trying to give the bulk of my contribution to Linux developers to kind of vote with my wallet. Um, So Wes didn't want to let you guys know. Uh, He said, don't tell you, but I thought you should know. Well, I thought it would would really get him down. You know, there's enough bad news these days already. That's true. That's true. I have some good news. MailRoute.net slash Linux. Try out MailRoute today and get 10% off the lifetime of your account and start with a 30-day free trial, no credit card required. That's right, MailRoute's back for another episode because it just is such a great fit. We heard from a bunch of you last week that tried out MailRoute. They've been doing MailRoute for 24 years, yeah. They've been focused on one thing, providing cutting-edge email security, and you know I respect that. MailRoute protects your email server with a suite of services designed to remove spam, prevent viruses, and debilitating downtime. And, you know, with our audience who likes to host stuff on their own, you guys know sometimes it's tricky with your ISP or for your own security. Maybe you want to run SMTP on a different port. Or maybe for some stupid reason, your perfectly legitimate email server has ended up on a blacklist that you are constantly fighting. Oh, no more. Malroute solves all of those problems and more. And they make it super easy for your business to migrate if you use Google Apps or Office 365. It's like one click. But really, even if you don't, like I, I, I just, I just set it up with our mail server that we built over the last couple of weeks, and it's it's, it's crazy straightforward. If you if you know anything about managing a mail server, you can make this work. It's probably you're probably done in ten minutes, assuming you know the logins to your DNS and to to your mail route account. <laughs> But the one-click migration is really sweet. And they do have API-level integration for getting information in and out of MailRoute, which I really appreciate, especially if you want to make sure that you only allow mail from certain accounts and you want to sync it with your master mail server. Their API is great. If you do business with the federal government or you're a contractor where you have to meet certain types of requirements, well, they got you covered there as well. And as an admin... 
You're going to love the fact that they have real-time log searches, which was super useful when we were setting up our mail server. And you also can queue mail up at MailRoute for up to 15 days or whenever you release it, which is perfect for covering you during an outage or maybe just a window for some maintenance. Like before, before that, I, I don't, I don't know what I would have done. Like, what? Just take the mail server down and hope nobody emails us during that time. <laughs> it's so silly. And so, having something just in front of your mail server, it's just a higher quality, higher production grade. And of course, they know how to do this stuff. So go try, go try out MailRoute today and get ten percent off the lifetime of your account and get a thirty day free trial by visiting mailroute.net/linux to protect your business and your email server. MailRoute makes email better. MailRoute.net slash Linux. Fedora 34 is a big release. It's huge, and there's a lot to talk about in here. So much to cover from both the desktop side, but also in the other spins and core technology. Whew, Wes. I don't even know where we start. Well, before we get too far along... Maybe we should take a moment to address the long-term future of Fedora. I think it's it's safe and probably more secure than ever, even after those recent CentOS changes. But I know there's a lot of people that have been worried about that, thinking maybe, you know, well, look at the changes happening to CentOS. Could something like that happen to Fedora? Right. But I mean, it just, I don't see it. I don't think it really makes sense. It seems like Fedora's role really is needed, right? It's it's the place where everything happens first, where these things get integrated and tested and tried out, and the needed development can actually happen. Pa- packages can be tweaked, bugs fixed. Core system stuff. Yeah, new approaches to both the server and the desktop. They all happen there, and Red Hat needs that. Right. They want it to happen there. It, it seems like it's now sort of integrated to the process of development in a way that is, I think you could say it's codified. It's it's clear that for for RHEL to be a successful product, when you look at it from like a corporate org chart standpoint, Fedora is square one. It's like you start at Fedora, and for, for the end product that they make all the money from to be successful, Fedora has to be successful. And this new arrangement with CentOS Stream sort of codifies that, I think. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it makes it more clear, at least, to some of the stuff that was happening internally. Now you can just see it laid out in this pipeline of how how things get created and how those changes eventually make themselves into a Red Hat release. Right. But regardless of the details, I think we can just not worry. Don't be scared to try out Fedora 34. It's great. We should probably just highlight all the awesome things going on, and maybe a few of the things we don't love. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning that there are many spins of Fedora, so we're going to talk at first a lot about the workstation version, which ships with GNOME Shell, but there's a Plasma spin, there's a server spin, there's a lot of different versions uh, here, and some of it is core technology that applies to all of them. Uh, If you want us to cover another one specifically, like a specific spin, totally let us know at the contact page. I would love to. I just don't want to overdo it. So if there's something you'd like us to look at specifically in this realm, please let us know because otherwise we are just sort of restraining ourselves and trying not to overdo it. Uh, You know, like the server spin, uh, I think that's particularly interesting this release potentially because I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I believe that the next RHEL is ultimately going to be based on Fedora 34. So what happens here is particularly interesting for several reasons beyond the immediate reasons. And uh, no matter what variant of Fedora you use, you're going to get the latest in what the open source world has to offer. And really, all of what we're about to cover will show up in just about every distro near you soon, at least most of it. 
So uh, let's start with the big headline feature in the workstation spin, which is GNOME 40, which we've talked about a little bit before. Yeah, I mean, it's not new in the sense that it was already released, but the first time it ships in a big-name distro, that's that's something of a milestone. It is, and it's the first time you're going to really see it land in front of a lot of end users, and it's predominantly recognized for the change to horizontal workspace layouts, and which is similar to how elementary OS has already been doing it. It's how I actually have my Plasma set up configured most commonly, and it's a lot how Mac OS has done it for several releases where the, the, and I think how Windows 10 does it if you enable virtual workspaces where everything is left to right, essentially. And once you learn it, it feels fast and natural. And and actually, because it is so inc- so common with the other desktop platforms, it makes moving between all of those a little less frictiony, you know, a little smoother on the brain. I like that a lot. But I think the other thing that hasn't really gotten a ton of appreciation in GNOME 40 is GTK 4. And GTK 4 is like at step one of getting awesome, and each iter of release we're about to get, it gets even more awesome. And the awesome that I'm talking about is performance. I'm talking Vulkan rendering performance, and it's looking real good. And GTK 4 apps snap. They really do. Yeah, man. And when you combine that with GNOME Shell 40 itself, that's a nice little package, right? It. I mean, I've just been playing with 2104 for a while and was thinking about keeping it around. It already felt much faster than the Plasma desktop I've been using before, but GNOME 40 is just the next level. Yeah, and uh, I've been impressed at how fast extension developers are updating to support GNOME 40. They, they have to implicitly update their extension. Now, there are a few cons that I've noticed. And I want to preface these cons with, I suspect they're all going to be addressed in future releases. But the reality is, it's not as easy to get a quick overview of what apps are on which workspaces. In the vertical layout, you would have a right there, like a film strip on the side of your screen, and you would see all the different application windows across all of your desktops at once. With the horizontal layout, you see like 1.3 of a desktop at a time. It's just not quite as efficient, but it's so quick to slide through them. And they do have little tiny, tiny, tiny previews at the top that kind of give you an indication. Uh, Right, that, uh, where did I put that terminal problem? Yeah, that, that app I launched two days ago. Also, it's kind of hard to move the workspaces around themselves. You know, say you start a chat app, uh, maybe you've got two chat apps on one screen. And on the second desktop, I open up my browser, and then I decide I want to swap those two things. So the browser's on desktop one, and my two separate chat applications are on desktop two. The only way to do that right now in GNOME 40, instead of just like being able to grab the virtual workspace, the whole workspace itself and move it, you have to like reshuffle all of the applications. So like move all the apps over to one screen, and then move the other apps over to the other screen, in these tiny little boxes at the top of the screen, in this little bitty bitty preview, uh, you just can't swap the workspaces around easily. Um, but when you do get that layout right, after you've spent the day with it and you figured out, okay, I like these apps on these screens and all of that, man, it rocks. And it rocks, really. It rocks in a way that like feels super polished. And the only thing it leaves me wishing is that I could then somehow save and restore that layout so I just log into GNOME Shell and my applications always open up on those virtual desktops. Right, something that Plasma makes pretty easy. Yeah, but man, is it smooth. It feels very, very professional. So that's GNOME Shell 40, really overall pretty much a positive positive take. I'd like to see some work with additional external monitors, but I know that stuff's coming. I do think you hit on something that I noticed as well. It, it is really great, but it is clearly the start of a development chain. You know, there's some new ideas that are being explored and have been recently implemented that are still getting worked out and that changes will happen to. And that really felt contrasted to 
2104 sticking with the previous release, which, you know, they'd, they'd polished out a little more of those things. So depending on which way you like to interact with your desktop, that might be one way to sort of choose which of these new distros do I stick with. In 2007, Fedora 8 was released. And one of the headline features of Fedora 8, I listened to my review this morning from Linux Action Show, like, 67 or something. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, was Pulse Audio. That was the release of Fedora that they switched to Pulse Audio. And I think everybody knows how that went. In Fedora 34, this is the release where they switched to Pipewire by default. And it is a completely different migration. Seems to be... Far more successful. I mean, it's only just started, but at least in my testing, you basically don't notice anything's different unless you use some, you know, there are picky apps, there's still some pulse modules that are getting implemented here and there, but by and large, it just works. Not only does it just work from an end user experience, but the project has been much more successful in reaching out to the individual quote unquote stakeholders, if you will, and getting them on board. And even making changes, like I think in particular, there was a lot of feedback from the Jack community that influenced some of the design decisions with Pipewire. That meant that as Pipewire went along, instead of turning people off and pissing them off and and kind of creating a a divisive atmosphere, it created this momentum of support. And we started picking up application support and library support and distribution support and 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 Linux media support. And it kind of was, it all kind of kind of really worked well. Like it was a good community management and code management. Which is what you need if you're going to try to be the unifier, right? I mean, that's part of the promise of Pipewire is all of this stuff happening in one go, your Pulse and your Jack, and you're also all happy together. And in particular, one thing you get out of this now if you're using Jack is way better and easier access to Bluetooth devices thanks to Pipewire. Yeah, and really just, I think, an easier time kind of getting up and going and configuring Jack applications. Uh, it, it, it sort of solves some of, the, some of the fundamental plumbing that you used to have to worry about and, and makes it just all of a sudden, like these applications that have been around for a while, even easier to use in some respects. It is neat as a moment right now of Pipewire happening. You know, I think we all had a lot of confidence in the project just because of the, the folks developing it and their history and skill and just sort of the, the previews we'd seen along the way. And we've certainly covered it a lot on this show. But the fact that it is not not used for audio yet, but deployed in 2104 and now shipping with audio in Fedora 34, I don't know. If this goes well, it seems like Pipewire is here to stay after this. I think this is the like the part of the technology stack of this release that you and I are the most excited about, and we don't know like what the line is. Like, should we talk about it all a lot, or is it like inside baseball podcaster stuff? And so, like, we just cover the high details and move on. So, let us know. That's another an area we'd like feedback. But something that's a bit of peace of mind for me in this release is that this version of Fedora ships with X Wayland standalone. This is nice because you've probably heard that Xorg releases are, are a bit unmaintained. Um, the current upstream release is stuck to the 120 branch for years with uh, no real foreseeable major update, at least. But what they've done with this standalone X Wayland session is they've built it from the Git snapshots of current code upstream rather than the stable branch, so where the fixes have kind of landed, and they've broken it off out from Wayland itself. It's nice to see that, and it could probably even, I mean... Not only could it result in better performance, but maybe even in some use cases, better battery life. If you're not if you're not running any X applications now, you don't. This won't be running at all. Yeah, definitely. And it just sort of you know wasn't accessible. There were fixes going in, and that was the main part of the sort of X repo actually seeing any development. But 
when they weren't being shipped, no one had access to them. You didn't, you know, you don't want to just pull from that without having tested it. So it's nice to see that there was enough developer effort to sort of bootstrap this, keep it alive and functioning nicely. Yeah, I bet you'll see other distributions follow this particular suit. Um, another nicety and for several reasons is that Wayland is now the default for the plasma spin. So, you know, Plasma's Wayland support has been getting pretty good and pretty much daily drivable in 520 and even better in 521, which is what's shipping with Fedora 34. And so it's, it's, it's a great kind of milestone that was set because when the Fedora project said, we're switching to Wayland by default for our Plasma spin, the Plasma project saw that and realized we got to double down on this code. We got to get this shippable and working. And it, not in a bad way, like in a very kind of cooperative, well, this project set a goal and we're going to work hard to help them succeed at that goal and it's going to be good for our project too. And it was a good example of how Fedora 34 played a role in a wider ecosystem improvement for Wayland support. Yeah, you can really see that even just in the in the change here and on their, their post about it on the Fedora wiki where they write, Fedora has long been a leader in advancing the adoption of the Wayland protocol. Much of the quality of Wayland for GNOME can be attributed to the work done by the Fedora Workstation Working Group. It's now the KDE Special Interest Group's turn to do the same for the KDE platform. So I think there really is this sort of shared responsibility and help and goal to sort of, you know, push things over the hill and get it nicely working now that we've got stuff like NVIDIA proprietary support working, uh, screencasting, middle-click paste, all the sort of, you know, 90% little paper cut stuff that needed to be in there before you could really ship it. Yeah, there's still edge cases. You know, the other day I had this problem where my, for the for whatever reason, until I rebooted, my Wayland applications could not copy and paste to my ex-Wayland applications. It's a problem that's been solved, but it just started hitting me the other day. And um, so it's it's not all there, but I'm, I am such a, a performance nut that I will live with those paper cuts to get the smoothness of Wayland. On my X1 Carbon with the full Fedora stack, it's so damn good that I think you could hold that up as an example of a premier Linux experience. And it makes me really excited for this technology to land in other distributions as well. I also decided to give it a spin on something a little different, Wes. I tried out the ARM64 image on my Raspberry Pi 400. Oh, yeah, right. There's a new AR64 KDE Plasma desktop image available this time around. Yep. What did you think? Um, You know, it's not super fast, Wes. Um, okay. It's a little bit faster, I felt like, than the GNOME shell uh, images, uh, which is probably Ooh. not too surprising. But not fast enough for daily use. Not fast enough at all. The uh, command line interface, perfectly fine. If you wanted to use this thing to host some file services for yourself or make it a, a, you know, a LAN server, fine, great. It'd be good. But as a desktop environment, Wes, uh, it's just not quite there. We're yet. just not, we're not there yet, huh? Or you maybe you needed something more lightweight, I guess. And I was running it from a SSD over USB 3.0, not from an SD card. So I, you know, I was kind of giving it a performance advantage. You were trying, yeah. Yeah, and the Pi 400 is slightly faster than the Raspberry Pi 4 vanilla. So <laughs> someday those things will be a regular desktop. What I really want, actually, my goal, and I think they're going to get there eventually, but my goal is to have a, a Pi device of some kind that is on 24-7, that's logged into all my stuff, so if my desktop ever breaks or an update goes haywire or I want to reload for a day for some crazy thing we're doing on the show, I want to have like a, an appliance that has my chat apps, my email, and my web browser ready to go for me all the time, just like a 
just like a mission critical console, you know, that's in my office that takes up very little space. Just and the great thing about the Pi 400 for this job is that it's the keyboard and the computer in one. And as, as silly as that sounds, it means it takes up a lot less space because I just have an HDMI cable and a USB C cable and a mouse. Right? It's simple. It's great. I actually do Ethernet too, but it's really nice. So I'm hoping, and I honestly just, I think maybe Manjaro has invested more in this area. They've spent more time here. But the Manjaro versions on the Pi 400 are significantly better. Like, absolutely, I can do that job with Manjaro or Ubuntu 20.04. Oh, okay. So maybe there just needs to be a little more tuning. That's that's hopeful. Could be. Could be. I learned a valuable lesson, though, thanks to Neil, who, who responded to a, a quick question I had during the week. To make it work, you need to really, for the best time, I mean, there's probably a thousand ways to do it, but you really should use the Fedora Media Writer to make the whole thing actually bootable. And there's some cool options it gives you, some some nice-to-haves, like turn off the boot splash so you can see all of the output or turn on SSH or some options that you might use if you didn't have a monitor hooked up. So it's a, it's a really nice tool. Also nice to see that you can use it from the Mac and Windows, too, if you need. Oh, really? They have, oh, oh okay, I did not know that. So they have Mac and Windows versions of the Fedora Media Writer? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Good for them. All right, well, um, Moving down the stack a little bit, another kind of headline feature here is ButterFS transparent compression. And if you're like me and you are you were around during the drive doubler days of the DOS era, this is a totally different beast, and it could be particularly great for SSD users. So where do you want to start, Wes? Well, maybe we should start and say this isn't a new feature for ButterFS, but what's new here is Fedora adding it on by default. You could add it if you'd like, but I don't even think it's a default. Just when you make a, a ButterFS file system, you have to manually go in there and add the add the mount flags to say, hey, do compression. So, you know, like with a lot of things in Fedora, this is some some trust in saying this makes sense. It works in enough use cases that we think all of our users should have it, at least if they're using ButterFS. I'm going to use this. Totally think this is a great feature. But it did cross my mind, like, what if something goes wrong? Like, am I risking my my data here? Sounds like they checked that out as part of this change. And as far as we know, known compression-related bugs are just kind of cosmetic. Nothing that is data loss. And this has been okay. in, in the file system for a while. Seems like it just works. Okay. Yeah, I know it's been in Butterfest for a while. They're just, the change here is they're turning it on. Um, and I say good on them. You know, I, I say too, if you're on CFS, you should consider doing the same. And they went with this compression algorithm because I assume they must have looked at the impact on the CPU and disk trust trade off and decided, okay, this is the right one to use. Yeah, they're using the Z standard. Then they picked a specific default compression level because it, it's tunable here and you can kind of choose different parameters, you know, speed and how well does it compress and kind of pick the one that made the most sense in terms of like CPU usage and memory and disk space savings. What do you actually get out of it? It's just so neat that we, you know, because of the way our architectures are and how fast CPU are and how slow it can be sometimes to talk to the disk, even a fast disk just makes sense to compress things first and you don't ever have to worry about it. Right, just get it to the CPU, you know? Just get that data to the CPU and then let it do its thing. And this is probably available on the distro you're using now. You could, you know, make a, a, a partition and, and, and use compression today and you probably should consider it. There's just one thing to remember. It's kind of tricky when you're checking your free disk space going forward due to the nature of transparent compression. It's transparent. So um, utilities like DU are only going to report the exact uncompressed file space usage, which is not the actual space that they take up on the disk. So it gets a little tricky. I assume there must be tools, Wes. 
Yeah, uh, the Fedora magazine had a good write-up about this feature, and they recommended they comp size utility. If you're curious, of course, that'll be in the show notes. And they've also got a good tip if you want to go back and retroactively compress older files if you've just added this mount option now, because it only applies to future files. Now a little bit uh, further up in the stack, so in the systemd layer, uh, I thought we talked about this feature in episode 351, but we're getting systemd out of memory daemon now, which I guess is different than the early OOM we've talked about before. Yeah, it turns out there's a lot of options here. Um, Yeah, so last year at this time, I guess Fedora 32 it would have been, early OOM shipped in Fedora, and that was a big change, and we talked about it. Of course, there's also Facebook has some work, which we talked about in this space. They were interested and also helped get new statistics like uh, memory pressure, PSI metrics into the kernel. So they've got a tool that uses that, also kind of enabled C groups, and now systemd is in play. Because, you know, if you have a daemon, it's doing something on your Linux system. You better just do it in systemd. It's going to work out better. Managing processes does make sense, right? It does. It does make sense to have that in systemd. Yeah, and it's and you know it's nice and smart and integrated. It can do stuff per C group. Lots of cleverness with you know fancy new kernel features to try to get this right and do a better job of you know not killing stuff that doesn't need to be killed, but also trying to kill things early enough that it actually helps save your system. And I actually I have not looked at this myself, but I have been led to believe this is simpler than at least from a configuration standpoint than the the previous stuff made by Facebook. Yeah, sounds like it. And it's neat that it's using that memory pressure uh, indicator. And so what it does, audience, I don't think we've clearly explained this, is it's monitoring applications and processes and whatever, and it's checking for memory pressure and availability. And if it has to, before your system gets really crappy in a low memory situation, which Linux is famous for, this thing will kick in and essentially kill it to save the overall system. Yeah, this uh, system D-O-O-M-D, I guess, can also monitor similar stuff for swap and act there to try to free up swap. And according to Neil in the IRC room just now, I guess early OOM was really just something of a stopgap to try to get this feature out there while system D-O-O-M-D was in the works. Okay, and then there's one last thing that I was waiting for you to kind of explain to me, and that is, I, I think I, I must be mistaken but I guess it looks like they've removed support for disabling the SE Linux runtime. What is this outrageous thing, Wes? Oh, yeah. So people might be kind of confused by this. So we should probably note up front that uh, by disabling SE Linux, what they mean is that the kernel doesn't call into the SE Linux subsystem at all. Switching SE Linux between permissive and enforcing using set enforce, that's not affected. That's fully functional. You can still set it to permissive mode. What's changing here is kind of subtle. You may never have used it. Right now, SE Linux can be disabled by passing SE Linux equals zero on the command line as you're booting, or in user space by a config file in Etsy SE Linux slash config. And then there's a library in user space, libse Linux, that reads that file. And during boot, if you've told it to disable SE Linux, then that, that user space library actually writes into the kernel unmount slash sys slash fs slash SE Linux and sort of disables it. But doing it that way, while very flexible and sort of helped out distros that had a harder time or in, you know, environments, systems that had a harder time changing or adding on to kernel parameters, it did make some security trade-offs when you're trying to use Linux security modules like SE Linux. So now that's getting ripped out. The only way to do it, you can't use that config file anymore. You have to pass SE Linux equals zero on the command line. Ah, man, I polished this pitchfork and everything. It was really shiny. That sounds perfectly reasonable. Yeah, it sure is. You'll have to look elsewhere for drama today. 
I'm also really, really liking what I see for the future of Grub configuration. It looks like it could be a lot simpler regardless of what platform you're on. Fedora 34 uses Unify Grub Config. So the Grub Configuration file layouts depend on the platform you're using. So if you've got an old BIO system or an open firmware or an EFI system, it's going to be different. And that's confusing for your old podcast host here. So the proposal, and I don't know if it's actually shipping yet, is to always store the Grub Config and Grub Environment files in the same place, slash boot, slash Grub2 directory, that place right there. And then making small tweaks in another directory and it always being consistent across all platforms. Seems like it has some obvious benefits. Yeah, it's it's just kind of more of what you'd expect. And I don't know about you, maybe there's a lot of users who hopefully don't ever have to mess around with Grub or what goes on in slash boot, but for whatever reason, I'm fascinated by uh, booting the kernel. So I'm always mucking around in there, even when I don't need to, or just checking things out. And on EFI systems in particular, there's been a lot of variance around how does the EFI partition get managed? How does it get mounted and where? And then <laughs> what things go in there versus go on like a slash boot partition that's you know not the fat one, but like an EXT4 version. Yep. Uh, so now that's being simplified. Everything's going to be consistent no matter where you're running Fedora. And it's going to be under you know slash boot slash grub slash grub.cfg like you'd expect. And Neil says says it has shipped. That is is so brilliant. You know, and it's kind of thankless work, sure. It's like it doesn't really change anything. It's not a new feature or anything. I mean, there are are benefits, but it's just that kind of nice cleanup and maintenance that is really nice to see. Oh, 34 is such a solid release. There's so much we could dig into. If you have any specific questions or area of interest that you found that you think maybe Wes and I could geek out on, let us know at linuxunplugged.com slash contact and congratulations to the entire team it is yet another fantastic release and it's i think maybe an extra special one with gnome 40 and plasma switching to wayland and pipewire landing and this unified grub stuff wow just just really just very impressed good work everybody now, before we wrap up today, we do just have a spot of housekeeping around here because Minimec has a special Luplug announcement. Yeah, thank you, Chris. You know, Chris, I had a dream. I always wanted to do a talk about the Mycroft Voice Assistant project, and guess what? My dream will come true. <laughs> I'm in contact with Chris Gessling, the community manager of the Mycroft project, and we both hope to be able to put together a cool talk for you. Um, the talk will be scheduled the 9th of May, but we'll be already be playing around with Minecraft next Sunday during Loblop. So in case you want to give Minecraft a try, we will give you a hand next Sunday. Chris himself, so Chris Gessling himself, might not be available for the talk because he is living in Down Under. So I mean, for him, the talk will be in the midst of the night. So this is a call for participation for our Mycroft uh, talk of the 9th of May and even for next Sunday. Of course, we will also invite the Mycroft community for that I talk. don't understand, but I'm learning new things every day. And now I was interrupted by Mycroft. That will be our special guest. <laughs> hey, Mycroft. <laughs> hey, Mycroft. Sing a song for us. I would be happy to sing for you. She hacked my bags last night, pre-flight. Hey, Mycroft, stop. So, Chris, <laughs> amazing. I'm sure we will have a lot of fun. And that's all for me. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Mini Mac. Check out the Love Lug every Sunday. It's noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or get it in your time zone at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. 
that sounds like that's going to be a really great one. And it's always fun to hang out in the lounge in our Mumble server and just chat with people that think like you do. Information for the Mumble server is at linuxunplugged.com. And thank you to our Unplugged Core contributors at unpluggedcore.com. I have a special note for you. So check your feeds. It's also in the member download area for a very special exclusive deal to get 15% off an item I have created for our members in the Jupiter Garage at jupitergarage.com. So go go check your feed or the download area. You'll see it there, and then you can take 15% off for something, which is the reason why it's 15% off is really because that's the cost. <laughs> that's our, so you just get it at cost, uh, and it's a, a very limited item. But our members, our members make this show really possible at the end of the day, so we thank them at unpluggedcore.com, and a discount on something like that is just one of the ways we can thank them. But I also get two feed options, a limited ad version of the show, same full production, all the Joe Lovin', just less as, or the full live stream, which is like another 1.5 shows, really. All our screw-ups, which is a lot this week. I had a liquid lunch. I, uh, on my way into the studio, I grabbed me a See You Next Tuesday because I, was, I just missed lunch. So I grabbed a See You Next Tuesday on the way into the studio and popped it open and chugged it before I started the stream. And I'm paying the price. But you know what? Joe cleans it all up. If you'd like to see all of the hard work he does, you can get the full live stream version where you hear all of it and you get all the extra content as well. So thanks to our members at unpluggedcore.com and make sure you go look for that special message. It's like a phone call between me and you and it's a, it's a discount and more information on what I'm hinting at right now. So thank you everybody. We do appreciate you. A couple of quick bits of feedback. Jim wrote in after hosting email for six plus years. You want to take this one, Mr. Payne? Jim wrote, I've hosted my own email server for six plus years with almost all that time performing minimal maintenance. There's hope for us yet, Chris. <laughs> Servers pretty much remain the same except for maybe compiling DevCot a couple times to get new versions. Originally, I'd followed a guide and installed the email server on dedicated hardware, but as I evolved in my Linux experience, I actually implemented Proxmox and was able to move that dedicated install into a container without reinstalling. Nice. Interesting. Here's another part that I had missed out on. I guess two years ago, Jim implemented Procmox Mail Gateway Container, which sets up a backend Postfix server while still using the web UI of this Proxmox Mail Gateway to access it. So you can still, you can still keep this existing setup, but just get a nice web GUI for free. Awesome. That is nice. Uh, you know what? That's the second mention I've heard of this Proxmox mail gateway. So that seems pretty, pretty good. He said he has had some blacklist issues, uh, but he just tries to ignore those ones. He's lucky because I've had a lot worse. Um, but we also got a neat trick for another self-hosted mail solution, one that may be a solid replacement for mail in the box if that doesn't work for you. It's from Sir Lurks a lot. He says, apparently, having been dropped on my head at some point, I also run my own mail server. And I thought I would mention a neat feature of doing so that I take advantage of. So here's a reason why you might want to host your own mail server. We also heard, by the way, side note, Wes, we also heard from a lot of people out there. They're just like, hell yeah, I'm still running my own mail server. Good on you guys. Go for it. Awesome. Which I appreciate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he says that he uses this wildcard feature, which are aliases that any non-existing email address that gets sent, like somebody emails something at, you know, Bob at his server that doesn't exist, it'll just forward to his main email account. The reason why that's nice is he can easily make up an email box name on the spot 
when registering for an online service, like make something specific for them, and then never really have to worry about it because it'll just show up in his mailbox. And if he ever wants to reply to it, he just goes and creates a quick alias first and then sends it off. But he also wanted to recommend this tool that's called Mod. Oba? <laughs> Modoboa. M-O-D-O-B-O-A dot org. And it is an easy way to get up and running with mail. Perhaps a mail-in-a-box replacement. It gives you Python and Django-based front-end interface to manage PostFix, DoveCot, and all of the related components. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Wow, yeah. It looks like it's got webmail, calendars, address book, filtering rules, auto-response. Fancy. And, you know, I love that first tip there because it's kind of like what you can do with you know pluses and gmail or outlook but way more flexible especially for those picky websites that won't take a plus and we have a rust pick not just any pick a rust pick and this one's a workspace that's aimed at developers i think they call it like a, a terminal with all batteries included Tell us about this little discovery, Wes. Yeah, it's called uh, Zellige. Zellige? I don't know. Z-E-L-L-I-J. And of course, yes, it's written in Rust. And while that part is exciting, I think what's most exciting to me is just sort of this new approach at a terminal multiplexer. And that's what it is at its core, but that's just the infrastructure layer. Because it also includes a layout system and a plugin system allowing you to create plugins in any language that compiles to WebAssembly. Yeah, Rust and WebAssembly. That's double hype for this project. That's right. That is pretty great. And it looks good, too. And of course, because it's Rust, there's a sketchy, just uh, pre-compiled, Musil-linked binary you can go download to give it a try with minimal friction. What could go wrong? I would run it with pseudo privileges. I would just do pseudo, and then I'd run the binary directly. It looks nice, though, I will say. Like, I've got it up, and it's got fancy fonts and a really nice banner at the bottom by default. It might stick around. <laughs> yeah, no, I tease. It does look really great. And don't run random binaries from the internet as pseudo. Do I even have to disclaim that? Should be obvious. I'm kidding. Jeez. Jeez. Anyways, that looks really good. It's Z-E-L-L-I-J? Yeah, link in the show notes at linuxunplugged.com slash 403. You can find a lot there. Also, you can find our sponsor, Cloud Guru, on social media. They're just slash a Cloud Guru just about everywhere. That's a social media website. It's really easy, slash a Cloud Guru, about everywhere. The Jupiter Garage is rocking. We have a little more Linux Action Show retro merch in there, including... The beloved zip-up hoodie, one left, is in there, as well as a couple of brand-new logoed items, all in the garage sale at jupitergarage.com. Wes, I know you already know this, but I'm very proud. We have shipped damn near 300 items from the what? garage sale. Two Nazes in the last week. That really is something. And, and it shows just if you uh, take a look at the studio, which is now yeah. definitely more of a packing and shipping place than it is an audio recording studio. <laughs> yeah. We have got we I really I'm very proud of it actually. Like took those lessons from that robe and we have really gotten our game together and we had so much old merch that I was hanging on to because of these emotional attachments that I realized we could be, you know, sharing with our audience and it's going. It's going out the door and we still have more gear and more stuff so check out jupitergarage.com for all of that. If you do the Twitter thing, you can follow this show at Linux Unplugged. The network is at Jupiter Signal and we have a whole 
whole network of shows, fantastic shows, over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Lots of great shows. Go check those out, including Linux Action News, where we break down lots of stories in the Linux world that you need to know about every single week. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station. Keep the Linux rolling and make it a Linux Tuesday and join us live 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern at jblive.tv. Links to everything we talked about today, how to contact us, the mumble room, matrix info, probably even the garage sale. We link it up at linuxunplugged.com. Isn't that a great idea? It's like one website. You just go to that one website for all the crap we talk about. How easy is that? We do that because we love you. linuxunplugged.com. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Unplugged program. And we will see you right back here next Tuesday. Tuesday! jbtitles.com let's title this here show it's a long one and we covered a lot I mean obviously mostly the focus is Fedora 34 but there's a lot of ground there's a lot of ground to cover no kidding Uh, Fedora 34 the worst release ever oh that would be a good idea yeah get them get them clicking with that one oh (laughs) jeez clicks